You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, episode number 60, Subgroup Identification Using Sites and Its Practical Challenges. An interview with Andy Nichols. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen and enhance your efficiency. In terms of leadership, I'm pretty excited that we will have an upcoming webinar. It happens on May 30th and it's about mastering the art and the science of influential communication for statisticians. I'm doing this together with Gary. Gary will actually be the main presenter. And in this webinar, you'll learn about challenges when communicating, the keys for you to be, become more influential. We'll also talk about challenging audiences and why it's important to have a strong start. Finally, we will give you three things you can do now to improve your communication. So go to theeffectivestatistician.com slash webinar and there you can register and enroll for this. Also, please tell your colleagues about it because I'm pretty sure they will benefit from it as well. So don't miss out this opportunity to become more effective and register for the webinar at, again, theeffectivestatistician.com slash webinar. So in today's episode, we will talk about sites, which is really about the identification of subgroups in clinical trials. You can actually also use it in observational data, but we will focus on clinical trials. With Andy Nichols, we will go step by step through this really, really elegant uh, approach and also apply it to a practical example. The podcast overall is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to really nice special interest groups, the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. By the way, you can see a presentation about Andy Nichols' um, webinar on the video and demand content as well. So there's really low rates for becoming a member. Just check out and go to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And this time we have a very, very technical topic. We talk about subgroup identification. And there has recently been a webinar uh, from PSI organized about supervised and unsupervised learnings and the pitfalls in it. And Andy gave a very, very nice presentation in there. Um, we talked about a different presentation, actually my uh, cluster presentation at an earlier episode. So just scroll back in your podcast player and you'll find that. But today we talk about subgroup application, uh, subgroup identification and its practical challenges. Welcome Andy to the show. Hi Andy, how are you doing? Uh, hi Alexander, uh, very well, thank you. Cold this morning, but... Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, as we recorded, uh, it's snowing outside and uh, <laughs> it's pretty cold in January and of 2019. And um, in Andy, would you like to introduce you a little, uh, a little bit? What your career has been and what brought you into subgroup identification? Uh, sure. Yeah. So. Um... I, uh, I've had a bit, a bit of a strange career compared to most people. Um, I started out in a nice standard way, um, completing my MSc in medical statistics about 12 or 13 years ago, um, and started working for GSK, where I am now. Um, but after um, four or five years um, working in neurosciences, I left GSK um, to go work for a data science consultancy firm called Mango Solutions. Um, who uh, who specialise in the R language, if, if people have come across them. Um, so I was there for six years um, and ended up um, working across a variety of different um, sectors, um, still a little bit um, plugged into the pharmaceutical industry, but um, working on all kinds of projects, small and large, with people who sometimes just wanted to explore their data a little bit more. Um, sometimes there were like Internet of Things type projects. There's a huge variety of work. Um, but after after six years, I, I uh, left and came back to GSK uh, almost two years ago to the day. Um, and uh, that took me um, into the respiratory area um, where this, um, this analysis that we're going to talk about today uh, came from. Okay, very good. In terms of your data mining uh, time at Mango Solutions, did that help you to um, increase your knowledge about, um, let's say, these more advanced techniques to to find subgroups and things like that? Yeah. So some of the some of the stuff actually I've, I've picked up since I uh, since I came back. Um, so it's a bit of a mix, but I suppose Mango opened me up to. Um, the ideas um, beyond what you would typically learn as a as a statistician. So I guess up until the up until the point that I went there, a lot of my work had been very very standard, um, especially around neuroscience. We're, we're fitting a lot of kind of mixed models, and um, I guess the subgroup analyses that I'd always been exposed to were, were always kind of very predefined. Um, subgroup analyses. We, there was nothing really exploratory. So at Mango, where where I worked with a lot of, um, I guess, career data scientists, you'd call them people who don't necessarily have a statistical background, um, I was exposed to a lot of different ways of of working. Um, and, and in fact, actually now, since, um, since this analysis is completed, I've moved into a statistical data science group within um, GSK. So it's kind of, it's really actually shaped, shaped my career and, and where I've gone with it. So it's given me a um, it, it's definitely influenced what I've been, um, what I've been able to do, and, and where my interests have lay. That's great because I think such a kind of sidestep can bring completely different perspectives into things. Mm. Um, I myself have worked for nearly ten years in neuroscience, and I know kind of running mixed models on kind of all. <laughs> different <laughs> scales from depression to schizophrenia and pain and and so on and um, yes that can be quite standard at, at times in terms of um the copd studies that we're talking mm. about can you give a little bit of background where this is coming from okay so um 
I'll, I'll keep calling it SLS, or I should say what that stands for. It's the Salford Lung Study, um, so called because it was run in the uh, Salford area of, of Manchester in the UK. Um, it, in fact, there's actually two studies. There's one study for COPD and one study for asthma. So if anyone goes on to read about this afterwards, um, it's, it's worth being aware of that distinction. Um, so the study itself was a 12-month study. Um, it was designed as an effectiveness study as opposed to an um, efficacy study. Um, so you can think of it as kind of almost um, striking a balance between um, like a real-world cohort study and a traditional um, randomized control trial. Um, so it was randomized, um, but it was uh, an open-label study. And uh, in terms of study visits um, to, to assess um, the, the, the primary endpoint, um, which was a reduction in, um, sorry, which is the mean annual rate of moderate and severe exacerbations. Um, this was this was all done through electronic health records, and there were very um, the, the the study visits were effectively confined to the beginning of study and the end of study. Um, so it was a a large study, um, three thousand nearly three thousand uh, subjects, and. Um, there are a lot of endpoints in the study um, and a lot of data challenges, actually, because when you try and combine real world um, data from the electronic health records um, with the, with a finite amount of um, standard uh, standards, randomized control trial data, um, it, it brings about a lot of challenges. Um, so it's very, very, uh, very, very novel, very, very interesting study. So is that, what did you call that a uh, pragmatic study then? Yes, I think I think that's a, a good word to use to describe it. Yeah, so a randomized trial, but making it as close to real world as, as possible, just with adding the randomization, which then makes it a trial rather than an observational study. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's... yeah there, there's a lot of other elements to it as well. So for example, um, the uh, inclusion-exclusion criteria uh, were designed to, to make sure that we had a kind of all comers population. So traditionally, if you're running mm. a COPD study, you might, for example, um, ensure that you don't have any subjects with comorbid asthma. Um, you're also likely to, to remove current smokers. Um, and, and those types of subjects were permitted to, to um, uh, be part of this study. So as well as the, the design um, in terms of um, uh, the, the follow-up of the subjects, um, it was also uh, very open in terms of um, the, the types of subjects that you would see in the real world. Um, that is actually one of the things that I really love about these more kind of observational uh, settings and real-world data settings is that you get a very good variety of patients at baseline. Mm. So you get a lot of... Um, that which is kind of if you want to run a phase two study just to uh, understand what whether your drug actually works or not is mm. really not something that you would like to have because it adds a lot of um, variability. But I think for the tasks that we are talking about today, it's actually a very, very nice feature because you can explore across a variety of patient populations how the drug works and, and where there are differential effects. So it's in this part of the um of the questions that you are uh, asking about a uh, treatment, 
it's really a, a feature and not a bug. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so then um, you wanted to go into subgroup analysis. Um, there's a couple of different reasons for why you want to explore uh, treatment effects across different subgroups. What were the specific reasons for the COPD study? So one of the key motivations for this study was that because it was um, because it was a lot like a real world study um, in the in the fact that we had this broad um, patient population um, there was an opportunity like that you wouldn't normally get in a uh, as you as you say a phase two study or um, or even phase three um, confirmatory study um, to to explore subgroups there are patient subgroups that that don't that aren't normally part of those trials. Um, so again, going back to the the smokers, for example. So you're able to see how effective your um, your drug is in these uh, in these populations. Um, so that that was a key, um, a real key motivation for the for the team. Uh, and ultimately, if if you think about the motivations behind running such a study in the first place, um, what you're trying to do is is as you say, see how how the the study, uh, see how the drug performs in the real world. And in the real world. Um, these um, these differences in patient phenotypes um, are are going to cause uh, are going to result in in differences in, um, in in the effectiveness of the drug. So so that was the primary uh, the primary driver. Um, we're also lucky, of course, because we're um, collecting um, data across all of these different subjects, and because we have all this um, electronic health data, um, we were also lucky enough to have. Um, a, a large number of variables at our disposal. So if you're going to run an exploratory um, analysis to try and find subgroups like this, um, it obviously helps um, the more variables or features um, uh, in the data science world um, that, that you have to explore. So um, there was the interest from the study design and, and um, with that, we also had the ability to, um, to, to do it in terms of the variables that we could look at. Hmm. In terms of the endpoints, so you also had a couple of different endpoints that you looked into. So um, sometimes it's also interesting to see whether the um, endpoints are different uh, affected by by subgroups. So um, is is the efficacy you know more or less consistent? But are there safety um, signals for for specific subgroups? Did you look into these topics as well? Um, no, we, we didn't. Actually, in the study, there was um, uh, there was a wealth of data collected on um, uh, on on pneumonias, um, for example, as a, a as an SAE of of special interest. Um, but this was this was a purely efficacy um, focused exploratory piece of work. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily rule out that in in future. But um, there was nothing. Um, there's no other endpoints explored other than the the, the primary um, exacerbation endpoint. Okay, so let's look into kind of uh, a couple of different challenges uh, for finding relevant subgroups. One of the um, topics is pre-specification and post-hoc. Were all your kind of um, variables pre-specified and, and how did you pre-specify them? 
Yes, they were. Is the <laughs> is the short answer. So, um, even though, so the first, I, sh- I should be very clear to point out that this was a uh, post hoc piece of work um, that was carried out. It was the intent of the the team to um, to do this from I think r- right from the start, um, but it wasn't pre specified in the uh, in, in the SAP. Um, so, what we did um, was we wrote. Um, a post hoc SAP where we outlined all the work that we were going to perform. We determined all of the inputs to um, the, the sides algorithm um, that we ran um, and we pre-specified uh, all the variables that we were going to um, to use before running the analysis. Um, the specification of those variables was very much driven by the, the medical team. So this wasn't just a case of taking every single variable that we had in the study and throwing it in and and letting trying to let an algorithm um, do it uh, do what it does. Um, this this was very much um, done in conjunction with uh, with the, with the clinical team, and, and a lot of that was designed to um, to try and make sure that we were we were a selecting variables that were that would be available if a if a subject went into the clinic. So ultimately, what, what what you're looking at with analysis like this is to um, is to think about a subject who walks walks into the walks into a clinic. They're they're on some existing medication. It's not working for them. What part? What course of action do they take? Um, is is this? So this this was a study in Relvar. So is Relvar the right drug for them based on um, based on their patient characteristics? And so you need information that's going to be available at that point in time. Um, so there can't be things that we collected, obviously, during uh, during the trial. Um, also, obviously, because with a lot of these machine learning algorithms, you've got to be very um, very careful with uh, collinearity of variables. Um, and so there was a lot of effort to make sure um, upfront that we were um, we were picking variables that were uh, as as independent as possible. I suppose. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I ran the uh, sites algorithm myself a couple of years ago. And like with any of these um, approaches, if you put too many covariates in there, um, it gets very, very fuzzy Mm -hmm. and you just enter lots of garbage and you very easily come into the curse of dimensionality that there's just too many options and says, yeah, you need to pay quite a lot of a price for, for uh, adding, adding variables. So having a good kind of discussion with your overall team, with your medical team to, to go through culinarity, go through some practical things is really, really helpful. One of the things um, that is specifically challenging for these algorithms are continuous variables. Because if you want to find subgroups uh, based on uh, thresholds um, and you don't want to describe kind of for a continuous variable how your um, yeah, the slope is or you know you you fiddle some some other models. Did you actually pre-specify cutoffs for the continuous variables? Um, we didn't. No. So within the size algorithm, you can specify um, the level of binning that that, that happens. So 
Um, for example, you might take a variable like age and define that there will be sort of uh, there'll be ten cut points or 20, maximum of ten cut points or twenty cut points or five cut points, depending on how how you want to um, uh, how stringent you want to be. Um, so so we did that. We um, we had a pre-specified uh, maximum number of bins for um, for the continuous variables. Um, there's also um, uh, a multiplicity adjustment that takes place for uh, continuous variables or, or uh, and categorical variables with a lot of bins, so that you don't have um, those continuous variables dominating over things like sex, which is just a, a binary variable. Um, so the algorithm handles it reasonably well itself, mm. uh, and therefore we decided not to um, pre pre-specify any of the bins. The other thing is, if you think of something like um, uh, age, again, for an ex for example, um, we pre we ran um, some pre-specified subgroup analyses as part of the primary study, um, where we cut age, I think the level was at something like 55, um, round about that area, um, where we split into two groups and looked at that already. Uh, and I guess when you're running analysis like this, the, the question comes up, well, is that the right place to cut? So rather than just feed in these pre-specified mm -hmm. um, groups, it's like let's let's have a look and see what comes out out from the the algorithm. Uh, and I suppose as a slight spoiler, um, the the cut point that the algorithm found because uh, because age was um, found to be important um, was was quite close to that. Um, so 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 yeah, yeah. It, that that was the decision that we uh, that we took. But yeah, I don't think there would be anything. Uh, wrong as such with, with pre-specifying it. Um, I think it was just uh, the desire of the study team to, to, to explore as much as possible that drove that decision. Yeah, I think that is a trade-off decision. So um, if you let the algorithm choose the cut point, uh, then you need to pay a little bit of a price in mm -hmm. terms of some multiplicity adjustment. Um, if you set it up front, of course, the algorithm can't tell you what is the optimal one. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I think there's no right or wrong. There's, you know, you, you need to be conscious about, you know, where you're going. So, so I think that's, I, that's actually, it wasn't, thing. sorry, just, it wasn't actually just the continuous um, variables that were a challenge. So we had, uh, in our uniqueness of data, we had things like um, deprivation. So we brought in, um, uh, so Salford, for people who don't know the area, is, is generally a more deprived area in the UK. Um, and um, there's the, there was a lot of um, discussion around how um, the deprivation um, of the uh, of the subjects would affect um, their their responses to to, to medication. Um, and so, in fact, we actually run a, an entirely separate analysis um, exploring deprivation. But deprivation, um, the, the way we categorized it was in uh, twentiles. So it's you had a categorical variable. It was a, effectively almost continuous because you had 20 different um, deprivation categories that subjects could fall into. And there mm. were several other variables that were, were very similar. So I, I guess that also partly drove our decision because then you have to start trying to group some of those categories together as well as picking your split points for your continuous variables too. So it was a big challenge. Yeah, of course, kind of these, these ordered categorical mm. variables, especially if they have lots of mm. categories, as, as you mentioned, then, um, yeah, you get the same kind of problems like, like with the yeah. continuous ones.
Um, another topic is missing data mm. in, in your covariables. How did you deal with that? Yeah, so one and one really important respiratory measure that everyone outside of respiratory will always talk about, uh, as well as those within respiratory, is um, FEV1, so your forced expiratory uh, volume. Um, yeah. Uh, and FEV1 um, was one of those variables where we actually had, um, it was around about 20% missing data across the subjects. Because, in uh, again, it's important to recognize that Whilst FEV1 is collected as standard in, in most respiratory COPD or asthma trials, um, in the real world, it's not collected so um, so rigorously. So um, the way that the study was designed, we, we just had mm. we had 20% missing data for for FEV1. Um, so what so that was a, a really big challenge for us. Um, similarly with BMI, um, we had a, about the same. I think again, I think it was about 20% missing data for BMI. Um, so what we did was we decided to run sensitivity analyses, um, basically excluding those variables um, from the analysis and running it on the remaining uh, the, the remaining variables. And then uh, we ran two separate one, uh, analyses, one where we added in FEV1 and one where we added in um, uh, BMI um, to just to see whether we were creating uh, a similar uh, tree at at the end and uh as it turned out um the trees were very similar i think it was a it was, well it was it was a subset of the the full tree that we uh we ended up with in the in the study for both fev1 and and bmi but the same it was the same variables that were that, that were coming out um i i guess the the challenge then is interpret interpretation because you've got yeah. the missing data what you don't know is uh <laughs> uh is is the the cause of that missing data um were were all the subjects that we didn't have bmi for um was there a special characteristic of that that that, that we're missing um I'm, but i guess that's a missing data mm. challenge in uh <laughs> in, in any study um but but i that for what we yeah. could do with the sen uh, the sensitivity analyses we we did see some consistency so basically, you uh, ran first your analysis on uh, excluding these more problematic variables yep. on all patients. And then um, for those patients that had FEV1, you re-ran your analysis adding FEV1. Exactly. A much more concise way of saying it than I said. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Um, Another uh, topic, um, oh, maybe we can first go into the sites method because afterwards we can speak a little mm. bit about how it actually handles combinations of variables and, and multiplicity and, and bias because that's uh, that nice features <clears throat> in, the, in this approach that uh, manage these kind of problems. So um, let's walk kind of step by step through the sites algorithm what's the first step that it does so first um well it's worth noting that there's various different control parameters in but the first thing it will do is it will take all of your all of your variables um that you have and uh or that you pre-specified and it will it will cut them up into um cut the data up by each of those variables so for example if you have um, sex as a variable, it will partition the data into males and females. Um, with a continuous variable like age that we've mentioned before, 
Um, let's say you define 10 bins for age. What it'll do is it'll work mm-hmm. out those cut points, and then it will create a, um, a binary split of your data at each of those cut points. So let's let's say those those cut points were 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years old. There will be a cut point at um, less than 20, less than 20, greater than or equal to 20, less than 25, greater than or equal to 25. So you've basically created lots of um, binary uh, partitions of your data based on every uh, variable combination. And obviously, where you've got ordered categorical oh. variables, you, you're um, Effectively, in that example, age is an ordered categorical variable. You're splitting like that. If you have something um, that that's not ordered and is categorical, you're looking at all different combinations of uh, of the sets. If that makes any sense. So basically, you go through all the different covariates, uh, all the baseline characteristics that that you uh, pull into there. Did you also look into post baseline data? So, so for example, with a kind of early changes predicted kind of overall outcomes or things like that? So the, the only post-baseline variable we looked at was adherence. Um, so again, we, uh, we were, the, the motivation for this was, was for subjects walking into the clinic, what information would you have at hand to decide um, what the best course of action um, was for that subject. So we tried to avoid any kind of post-baseline um, variables. The only the only one mm. that we had was was adherence that we'd collected um, during the study. Um, and I think it, it's reasonable to, um, w- with the way things are changing now, it's reasonable to um, expect that you might have an understanding um, at that point of how adherent the subject is, perhaps if they're on some kind of mm. connected inhaler system or something in the future. Um, so, so that was the that was yeah. the only one. Yeah. But otherwise, we, we stuck to baseline uh, baseline covariates. Yeah, and I think that is uh, quite a good point. It speaks to kind of the decision whether to start or not start a treatment. Um, if you include later on post baseline changes. Um, I found that quite helpful to then answer other questions mm. like, given that you started and now you have this kind of initial response to treatment, would you continue on treatment or would you stop now treatment? So, uh, or mm. what kind of you know treatment benefit can you expect now based on this decision? So, or the early uh, treatment response. So that's possibly another uh, thing to look into. Okay, so the sites algorithm um, has digitized all the different uh, covariates at baseline. What's the next step? Um, so the the next step is to then, um, uh, and this is one of the input controls, is to look at the size of those splits. Um, so you can specify a minimum subgroup side uh, size in the sites algorithm. Um, so for example, if uh, that age split that I mentioned, if you'd split and uh, one of those cut points was at, at 20 years old and you only had 20 subjects, uh, 20, 20 or so subjects who were less than 20 and several thousand that were greater than uh, greater than 20, you have very imbalanced uh, groups and you've got a very, very small gr- uh, group with the potential to, to see something uh, really interesting in, in that group. But we would decide that that was too small a group. So we specified a, a minimum subgroup size uh, of 100. And I guess we were quite lucky because we had nearly 3,000 um, subjects in here that we could specify 
quite a large minimum subgroup size. But if you were trying to run uh, run this kind of analysis on a smaller study, um, then then that would be a, a real challenge to think about what kind of minimum subgroup size you would have. Um, so yeah, so any, any any kind of splits that result yeah. in in very small subgroups were uh, thrown away. We actually amended the algorithm slightly um, uh, to also look at um, the number of subjects on each treatment um, in each uh, in each of the two um, each of the partitions for each of the variables. Um, so I think uh, if I remember correctly, we yeah. had. Um, a minimum subgroup size of 30, uh, of 100 and we had 30 at least 30 subjects had to be on one treatment or other because we didn't want in, any imbalances in treatment too um, so yeah so a couple of controls yep. um, and then what you effectively do is um, run uh, run models on the on the subgroups um, so what you're looking for is is which subgroup um, which subgroups have the largest treatment benefit. So for example, if you're looking at if you split into males and females, which of the which of those subgroups has uh, has the uh, is your treatment having the most effect in? Um, and you do that for each of those partitions on each mm -hmm. of the, each of the variables. So um, you're taking all of those differences um, and you're going to have um, uh, a very simple model that you fitted um, to that data and you can then take that forward and compare each um, each of those subgroups that you've identified and the, and the treatment effect that you found um, you can compare that with the parent population so again let's say you'd found that males was better than females um, you might then um, compare males to the parent population of males and females all, all together. Um, or if you're, if you'd found that um, subjects greater than 50 years old were um, uh, had a had a greater treatment benefit than those that were less than 50 years old. Again, you compare the, those subjects that were older than 50 with the parent population of all uh, of all subjects. Um, and, and again, here's where you have another control because if you do that for every single variable, there's a there's a large chance you're going to pick um, uh, you're going to pick a high number. Uh, you're going to carry lots of things forward. Um, but here we we only take um, the the best five subgroups. So we originally fed in about thirty variables, and that resulted in something like eighty or ninety different splits uh, of the possible partitions of the data mm. that we took forward. Of all of those, each of those 80 or 90, you're going to have one group that's better than the other in each of those. Um, so of all of those different models that we fitted, um, you then take forward five candidate um, subgroups um, where you perform that comparison with the parent group. And, and the comparison is a very straightforward comparison. So the okay. comparison is you're effectively comparing the p-value uh, from um, from the model with the parent p-value, uh, penalizing it with um, some parameter gamma, so some number between naught and one, um, to to adjust for um, the fact that multiplicity. Uh, yeah, effectively, yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah. And so, um, 
the you describe the treatment effect not in kind of the absolute terms, but in terms of the p-value within the subgroup, with, which I think is a quite interesting thing. It's not looking into the interaction p-value or the you know the treatment effect itself. It looks into the p-value within the subgroup versus the p-value of the overall group, which basically already um, penalizes a little bit for for uh, smaller subgroups. Because these, by design, will always have a little bit bigger um, uh, p-values, so that is um, it's kind of directly a balance between the uh, the size of the effect and the size of the subgroup, so to say. Yeah, I, I'd I'd fully agree with that. It's very nice the sort of natural controls that there are within the sides algorithm. Okay, very good. So now you have your five candidates. So so you have five from all the different uh, binary variables that you started with. You have five candidates. What's the next step? Um, so taking that taking those forward, um, there is then a uh, resampling um, procedure that that. Uh, takes place. So this is a, again a kind of a weak adjustment of um, uh, of type one error. So you are um, resampling to see if you could find um, a random selection of data um, that um, that performs as well as your candidate subgroup. Um, so let's say you resample a thousand times. Um, if you can. Uh, if you can get more than five percent of those random samples um, beating your beating your sample, then then you might reject your your, your subgroup based on uh, based on that chance. So here now, kind of, if we have these five variables that we start with, we uh, look into um, the combinations. Also, um, whether you are, let's say, you have age, sex, um, and, and some others, you look into how um, older females compare to the overall population, isn't it? Ah, uh, yes, yes, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that is where kind of you look into, um, so basically first you screen for promising variables on an um, individual variable basis, and now we are looking into the combinations of these variables and um, to find subgroups that depend not just on one variable, but uh, possibly on a, on a couple of variables. Okay, and what's the next step now? So once you've got, um, once you've adjusted, you might end up with, well, some number less than or equal to five um, candidate subgroups that you've found um, that um, offer this benefit over the parent population now that could be as we said that could be male, males and females that could be older um, subjects less than 50 greater than or equal to 50 um, or any of the other any of the other partitions you've got and of course there's going to be overlap in those uh, in those populations um, as well but essentially you've got up to five binary um, binary splits of your your data and um, at that point you go again um, so let's say you found um, males uh, as one of your groups. Um, you go again, males becomes your parent population, and you look at all the ways of splitting um, splitting that population up 
again so you'd look at males that are older than 50 or less than 50 you'd look at um males that had um uh say i don't know less than less than or equal to two exacerbations in the previous in the previous year versus greater than two exacerbations in the previous year and so on um and with each of those each of those subgroups that you've identified um you just run run the algorithm through again um and that keeps going until mm. some pre-specified amount. So um, uh, we specified a depth of three. Um, so you're essentially you're going um, you're going again each time so that you have um, uh, a maximum number of three different variables um, that you're going to split by um, at, at the end. And, and of course, your tree. So, and that's where the tree comes in. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Your tree can look quite com complex at that point. Um, because let's say you split um, you split on males, then you go down. The next thing you find that's important is um, that they're older than 50. Um, equally, one of the first subgroups you could have found would be um, subjects older than 50 would ben uh, ha had a benefit. And then you split that and then you find males. So you can kind of find that they um, the same story appears multiple times, depending on which subgroup you split by first. Mm -hmm. You might then find a, a, another one. Um, but it's not it's not always the case. Um, but but. Yep. But it's uh, it, it's giving you lots and lots of different candidate splits, and I suppose the interesting thing about sides is it just focuses on those um, subgroups of benefit. So if you found the group of males to be um, um, to to have had uh, greater treatment benefit, you effectively ignore the females then at that uh, at that point. Um, so um, you ignore the uh, the uninteresting space and just focus on the group that you have found um, and try and, and try and further improve mm. within that group. Yep. Okay, now I have these trees. What what happens next? <laughs> so um, you have you have the trees, and the trees are complicated um, because they're not like a standard um, decision tree. Because um, because many of the subgroups you're going you're going to find are going to overlap. Um, so for us, we found um, a tree with um, with three levels. Um, And um, variables we found, um, first one, we found subjects with non-current coronary artery disease. Uh, and that was the only, the only split, actually. Um, so having coronary artery disease versus not having the disease in, in round one, that was the only um, improvement um, that, that, that made it through all of the gates within sites. Um, but then we further mm -hmm. split into uh, round two. We had a split on age, a split on a uh, CAT score, which is the COPD assessment test, um, and uh, polypharmacy, and then further splits around round three. So we actually ended up with eight different um, eight different subgroups um, that that were of potential uh, that where the subjects in those subgroups um, saw a much greater treatment response than. Um, than in the parent, uh, than in the original population. Um, and all of these, I think, we, as I say, we started with 2,800 subjects, um, and all of these were, um, were sizable subgroups, all of them over 1,000 subjects in each of those subgroups. Um, and there were a lot of patterns there. So of the, eight, of the eight different subgroups, there were only four different variables that came up. So the non-current coronary artery disease, the age, the CAT score, and the polypharmacy. In different combinations, those things came up. Um, uh, in all of the groups. Yeah. So what, one of the things that I found really nice about sites as well is you get a notion of what are the most impactful variables. Yep. So um, it's 
tells you, okay, this variable has this big of an effect and, and you get a rank of that and, and, um, you get a much better feeling of what are really the important ones. Mm. Um, uh, and that in itself is already quite helpful. Yeah. And I think it, because this is the first time that anyone in the, in the team had, had seen this, the interpretation was, was quite difficult. Um, and we, we obviously we ran through beforehand saying this is the kind of thing that you would expect. And we um, to an extent, we actually had to explain uh, the model a little bit um, without going into too much technical detail. But um, the, the, the key thing that, that I think that, that brought home the message was that these were the four variables that were coming up over and over again. As you, uh, as you say, ignoring the, the tree itself, actually everything is a can. What you're trying to do is identify candidate subgroups, um, especially in, in the way we ran the algorithm. Um, we did not create a, uh, a validation set for the data. So we used all of the SLS data to train train the model with the idea that we, um, at some point in the future, will go out and, and, and be able to test this subgroup on our on external data. Um, and so really, as, the, mm. as, the, as this was a very exploratory notion, just understanding what those, uh, just seeing what the variables came out um, was the most uh, was the most interesting thing, rather than trying to look at specifically that subgroup and see what is the, um, you know, what is the additional benefit that we see within that particular subgroup. It, it, it's more the, the indication um the the indication of which which subgroups there were which was which was the thing that we took home yeah yeah that's actually one of the nice findings um that you actually got out with with four subgroups um what have would have been the interpretation if no subgroup would have come out um that would that's a very very good question what would they have said what would i (laughs) what would i have said um i think uh i I think if you're seeing that there's no there's no subgroups coming out then i i I suppose assuming all of your input parameters which obviously you'd look at and say is there anything we're doing that um so, for example, one of the things you can control is is this gamma value, this penalization on the mm. p values. Maybe you're being too stringent on that. Um, you can, I mean, we actually ran a gamma tuning exercise, um, which is extremely computationally intensive, um, but um, optimizes um, optimizes the gamma um, the gamma values for you, rather than just say choosing half a half a half at each level or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but but that could be something that you could look at to say, okay, were, were we too were we too stringent on, on the improvement? But but if not, then I suppose you're in a situation where you're you're not actually um, you're not actually able to improve very much on the on the parent population. There's nothing obvious jumping out. I suppose I'm thinking about this for the first time because um, in all the kind of test test runs and, and practicing things that I've done around sides, I've always found subgroups. So I've never really been in the position to try and interpret yeah. it. Um, but, but yeah, I, I guess, I guess you, you have to conclude that your, your treatment, if they if you've already seen a benefit in the main study is, is fairly unanimous in the benefit that it provides. Yeah. I think that is one thing. The other thing that, uh, might be worth looking into is whether you were too broad in the input variables. 
so that you put too many variables in mm. that because there's a you need to pay a price for that as well and um rethinking that might help and i think what for me if if you kind of run this and and used a couple of different options you can also play with the um with the minimum bin size that we talked about mm. is your treatment possibly works pretty consistently across all the yeah. known variables and which could be a very very nice thing in, in itself because uh, that means your the outcomes of the treatments are quite predictable um, which makes it easy to use so that's a that's another outcome to look into mm. it, it could also be the you know initial research question if you want to show that your um, uh, drug works very, very consistent across all the different um, uh, variables. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree, um, and and I think actually the 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 one thing that we were that that we did have to deal with with the team is that because you focus on specific subgroups where it performs really, really well, the question is then, well, what about the subgroups where um, it didn't perform well? And and I, I guess if you're in a position where like, like we were, we were lucky enough to have a, a sizable um, treatment effect in the first place. And actually, what what you're doing is you're not you're seeing sort of no difference in those those subgroups that you've cast aside um, along the way, rather than a, a swing the other way in favour of the comparator group. Um, but but yeah. that's some, certainly a, a topic of debate if you if if you see that. Um, but of course, it, it's always important to remember the you're running this analysis um, statistically as for every, you know, every time you find a group um, with, with a lot of benefit, you're going to find groups that are um, the opposite way as, as well. Yeah. That, that's yeah. worth bearing in mind. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, yeah. And actually that is one of the things that you need to look into at the beginning because uh, basically need to, you need to sh say, okay, in which direction you want to look. Yeah. So you can look into the direction, is it actually better? Or, and a different a thing would be to look into the direction, is it actually worse? So that is, I think, especially if you have head-to-head -head studies, so you have two active controls in there, or you want to look for, for uh, you have a dose selection study and you want to look for um, efficacy, uh, improvements for higher doses uh, or you want to look into um, uh, safety for mm. you know improvements for lower doses these kind of things you need to have in mind when, when you actually start with it okay very very good um what were kind of your overall learnings with the study team at the end um so th so there were a few learnings really um Obviously, this, as I mentioned a couple of times, is the first time this study team had been through this exercise. Actually, uh, the first time I've been through it at, at GSK, um, fitting the algorithm to, to real data. Um, and I, I guess the, the, the key learning that I had from this is you, you have an option when you start out with, um, with this algorithm as to whether you take a... Um, if you like a traditional machine learning approach of partitioning your data and, and keeping a number of subjects back um, to, um, to to validate your findings, um, or whether you just use the whole data and then look for another study. Now we we use the whole data on this, um, but then we had the challenge of because SLS was such a unique study, um, 
we we didn't we perhaps didn't think enough about well, well how are we going to validate any any findings um particularly if they're unusual mm. if they supported what we already believed then great but if we found anything unusual is that a new promising finding or is that uh you know random chance um and so we were left in a little bit in a position where it was di- we were struggling to validate because there were no other studies that had similar populations with the same drugs um t- to test in um so it, it's something that's sort of still hanging there um that other other teams are aware of and they're um it, it's not being the end for the algorithm sides has been run on uh various other studies at um at gsk as are other methods such as uh similar methods such as virtual twins have been considered so the the approach of um exploring the data to find subgroups is is being rerun but this finding we've not been able to validate so that that was something we took we took away um i guess we mm-hmm. we did rerun the model um on the of all the eight subgroups that we found the one that was best we reran that and we did see um uh, a, a real improvement over the original um data so originally in the study um we saw an 8.4 percent reduction in the number of uh, moderate or severe exacerbations and in this subgroup we saw a 21 percent reduction so the 8.4 percent reduction wow. was, was significant okay. uh was significant anyway so to go from 8.4 to 21, I mean, mathematically, we have found a group where, which performed a lot, lot better. Um, but yeah. some of that is the nature of the algorithm. You're going to find the, 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 best, <laughs> the best difference that you can, I suppose, um, within, the, within yeah. the data and within the bounds that you specify. Um, but, but I guess it proved, uh, it proved the, the, the mechanism that, we, that it worked to find this. Non-current coronary artery disease was something that none of, even though we put it in as one of the variables up front, it wasn't one that anyone was really expecting to come out. So it, it threw up an interesting finding. Um, so f- for that, I think the algorithm was definitely successful in um, uh, I- in that sense. It, it's, it got us to the point where we were asking questions about about the data, trying to um, look for an explanation. Um, and th- and there's. There's a, there's obviously counterpoints there, and there'll be there'll be statisticians listening, going, well, yeah, now now you've seen this, you're trying to um, come up with reasons why you might see that, and, and there was definitely an element of that. People were trying coming up with theories as to why uh, coronary artery disease and, cat, and and this particular split on CAT score would be would, would be important, um, but it certainly opens up um, questions and opens up the debate. So I think it was very successful in in that sense, and uh, that. Barring the learning about, um, you know, um, really communicating the the partition of data um, into training and test sets or training validation sets to to the study team, um, I, I think the other main learning was that actually this was a um, a pro- quite a productive exercise in in uh, understanding what machine learning can do um, w- with a data set like FLS. In terms of these theories about why this variable is interesting, I find it quite good to have a good literature search mm. at the beginning when you uh, speak about the covariates that you want to put into them so that um, the medics have a little bit of thought about the biology upfront and really kind of test whether these are relevant variables and if they have real literature for that because that helps to set expectations at the beginning and of course it also you have some kind of hypothesis that you're testing and um, you can prove where these hypotheses are coming from based on the literature so i think that has a couple of uh, advantages uh, to 
moves that way. Okay, very good. Um, so there is lots of replications of that at GSK, obviously, uh, which is interesting. Um, in terms of further learnings on this, um, Ilya Lipkovich, who is actually the author on a couple of uh, publications on that and from which I learned the method directly when I uh, was working in Lilly Neuroscience, um, has given another presentation uh, in this webinar. So if you go to the PSI homepage, you will find the webinar there with uh, the presentation from myself, from Andy, and from Ilya. And another person to mention is here, Alex Dimitrenko, that uh, worked together with Ilya on um, and was influencing all the multiplicity uh, things. If you want to learn more from Alex, he has um, been uh, discussing with me about multiplicity in an earlier podcast uh, episode here. So just scroll back in your podcast player and you'll find that episode as well. And finally, in the show notes, I will, of course, put the links to this webinar um, uh, and also the slides that were used in this webinar. So with that, thanks so much, Andy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This show was created in association with PSI. And next week, we will talk about estimates another time. And this time we focus on the composite endpoint strategy. Really, really nice with all the different applications and challenges and solutions for how to best use that strategy. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to enroll for the webinar. It will happen on May 30th. 2019 if you listen to this to a later date so looking forward to seeing you there bye